Uh, last week in our series, we we're in a fall series called A Better Story, and last week we were in John chapter 4, where Jesus had an interaction with a Samaritan woman. Uh, right there, at least two cultural and religious boundaries that Jesus disregarded, uh, and he moved toward people, as we talked about last week, that the religious community avoided. And in that conversation, we asked the question that we're actually continuing and picking up this morning, the question, how do we engage people with God's story? How do we do that? And I recognize this is a question that we could spend weeks answering, but in the context of our series, we're just taking these two weeks uh, to answer the question, how do we engage people with God's story? And not just any story, another story to add to the noise, but a truly better story. A story that gives a better explanation of where we came from when we look at the complexity and the order and the beauty of this world. A better explanation of who we are as human beings, our desire for purpose and meaning, our intelligence, our creativity. But also a far better story for where all of this is headed and the hope that God provides through Jesus. These questions are every, uh, questions that everyone is asking, I believe, in their own ways at different seasons of life, and they're answering in their own ways. For example, I don't know if you heard this, but a couple weeks ago, a NASA satellite, I think it was called OSIRIS-REx, uh, came back with the largest ever collected asteroid sample. And in this asteroid sample, they're finding carbon and water, and so they're excited, the scientists are, but what stood out to me about this particular article that I read um, was what the NASA administrator said, the highest ranking authority in NASA. When he spoke, he didn't just announce, this is the discovery we made or explain the science of the discovery. Listen to what he said. We are trying to find out who we are, what we are, where we came from, what is our place in this vastness called the universe? Isn't that fascinating? Not just these sort of, uh, you know, material scientific questions, but big existential questions that are weighing on every person. It's fascinating and yet not at all surprising. Because we're made in the image of God and we cannot resist the urge to seek out the answers to these questions. So today, we're going to look at a passage of scripture where we encounter a culture a lot like ours. Diverse perspectives, religious beliefs, different worldviews and, and practices, but all pointing to the fact that people are looking for answers in all kinds of places. And finding answers, I think, with the overlapping noise of the contradicting narratives, especially in America, I think we have to appreciate how complex that is for people who live today. Um, I had a, an illustration I thought I would share. How many of you like audiobooks, listen to stories when you're traveling or podcasts or whatever. So I got online and I found some free audiobooks uh, that were public domain. So just disclaimer, uh, they're all going to be fairly old. But um, I wanted to do a quick little pop quiz, if that's okay with you. You guys like quizzes? Um, no. <laughs> no, we don't. But we're going to do one. Um, should be fairly simple. We're just going to play the very beginning of a few classic stories and see if you can recognize the story. You, you down? All right, here's the first one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice, good job. I didn't say shout it out, but yeah, you go ahead and say it when you know it, all right? Um, pride and prejudice, okay, uh, here's the next one. Once there were four children 
whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Good job. Okay, uh, here's another one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities. That was quick. Nice work. Okay, one more, and hopefully some of you will recognize this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) Okay, if you're not laughing, don't feel bad. Um, That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first words of the Bible. Um, It's where we started our series and spent quite a bit of time. But the point is, we can recognize these individual stories in varying degrees and say, oh, yes, I know that story. I know the characters, the plot, etc. But man, I was reflecting on how living in our culture at this time, the, the access to information, the media, the globalization, the competing perspectives can sometimes feel a little bit more like this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It is a truth and the universally earth was acknowledged and void, that a single man and in possession of a good fortune the deep. must be Once in a the spirit of God fortune. moved upon the However little known the test. feelings or views so of such said, men may Edmund, be, let there be light. It was the best of times. This truth is so well fixed that it was good when they were sent to see the divine story. How many could enjoy that story? You can't even track with what's going on. I had somebody raise their hand. Good. You're weird. Okay. <laughs> we can't even tell the difference in what's going on, and yet how much does that feel like our culture? Everybody talking over each other and conflicting, and it's like, I don't even know what story I'm hearing at this point. We shared and looked at the verse last week from the last line of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. The last line is so poignant for not only that time, but I think ours, where it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone is left to figure out, and I think we should appreciate the fact that this isn't describing people, wicked, evil people who are shaking their fist at God. This is people who are trying to find what's right, but sort of left to themselves to figure it out for themselves. And so engaging with someone with God's story is not as simple as just walking up and adding more noise. We have to isolate their story, understand how are they looking at this life. And then from inside their story, be able to evaluate and create contrast from where they're at and where God made them to be. And then ultimately the goal is to lead them out to a better story. Now I share those three steps because that's exactly the outline for our morning today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, Acts 17, we track with Paul as he moves through several different towns in in Greece. He's going to different towns and along the way also encountering different cultures. And you'll see him, we'll see him, adapt his approach to engaging with God's story based on the people that he is with and the language that they speak. But as you're turning to Acts 17, I realized that Saying Paul, for some of you, that's a brand new character. In our series, we've not referenced Paul. Paul uh, was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians, and he was uh, sort of presiding over the execution of those who followed Jesus in his time. Until one day, Jesus himself appeared to him in a vision. And from that point on, Paul became one of the greatest proponents of Christianity and preacher of the good news that the world has ever known. He was completely, radically transformed. And you can read about that all in the New Testament. But in that initial encounter with Jesus, 
God gave him very specific instructions. He gave him a mission. And he said, uh, first of all, Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Those are non-Jewish people who didn't have the scriptures, didn't know the law or any of that. I'm sending you to the Gentiles, but listen to specifically what God says. I am sending you, this is Jesus speaking to Paul, to open their eyes. Why? So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the progression here, starting from the end and working backwards, is the goal is for people to be forgiven of all they've ever done wrong and right with God and belonging to God's people. Amen? That's what all of us long for, I think, in, in our hearts, is to be right, for things to be right in life, to say it's okay. That's what that describes, but if you back up, the only way for people to get to that point is to see the difference between darkness and light, to recognize the life they have been living and say, oh my word, that is not it, and then to turn to, to light, to turn to Jesus, but there's an initial step that Jesus gives to Paul before they can even see. He says, I am sending you to open their eyes. And that is not Paul playing the role of the Holy Spirit. That is Paul explaining things in a way people can understand, engaging in the language of each person that they encounter. And so that is what we're called to as believers. But that's also what we see Paul doing throughout this chapter. Acts 17, right at the very beginning, he's in the city of Thessalonica, Greek city. And if, you, if that sounds vaguely familiar, there's two letters in the New Testament. First Thessalonians, second Thessalonians. Those are letters Paul wrote to the church in that city. But this visit was three years before that. This is before there was a church, before he wrote the letters. And it says in verse 1, They, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were together at this point, came to Thessalonica where they, there was a synagogue of the Jews where they met for worship. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul has a custom when he comes to town of engaging with people with God's story. And he goes into the synagogue and with the Jews, he points them to the scriptures, right? He opens the scriptures. Why? Because that's the language they spoke. That's where they look to as their authority. And so not only is he speaking their language, but he's addressing a very specific felt need for the Jews in this moment, their desire to recognize their Messiah. If you talk to the Jews, that's at the top of their list is we, we want to know the Messiah. That's the Redeemer that's going to come and make all things right. And so Paul is, is addressing a felt need but he's also speaking their language. He's, he's appealing to the scriptures. And it seems from what he says here, they're struggling with the idea that the Messiah would suffer. That whole idea of Jesus dying, they're like, no, the Messiah would come and reign as king. They just didn't understand the sequence of events. So Paul's trying to point out from the Old Testament, see, the Messiah had to suffer. But he's engaging these people with God's story as we see here, and verse 4 says, some of them believed him, but others became jealous. They formed a mob. They stirred up the city, and Paul actually had to get out of town at that moment. 
Well, the next town they come to, verse 10, we're going to move through the beginning of this chapter because of time. Verse 10 says they went to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Sound familiar? Different location. Same practice. It was his custom to go in and to engage with the people. And again, he opened the scriptures, explained how the Messiah had to suffer, all of the same things as in the previous city. And like in the previous city, some believed and others got mad. Uh, They stirred up the city, they caused trouble, and again, Paul had to flee the town. Now, as I'm reading this chapter, I just had an honest question that popped into my mind. Is Paul doing something wrong? Like, if you come to a town and you deliver good news, shouldn't everyone say thank you? Awesome news. We can be forgiven of all we've done wrong and we can have a relationship with the God who made us. Why wouldn't they say that, right? But Paul understands something very well that he actually communicates to the Corinthian church, another Greek city. He writes the letter and in the very beginning of his letter, he says to them, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And I think as Christians, friends, we need to keep in mind the fact that there will always be a dualistic response to the good news of Jesus. To some, it will be absolute ridiculous nonsense, and you'll maybe even be made fun of. For others, it'll be the best news they ever heard, and their life will be transformed, right? And Paul understands this, so it keeps him going, and it keeps him from thinking that success is how many people responded, or how many people like me. I realize if our goal is to be liked, we will not love people enough to share the gospel with them. Now, to be clear, who wants to be liked? All of us. It's natural. And I think sometimes certain Christians think the goal is to be disliked. Um, you might wonder. But Paul himself says, live at peace with everyone. Uh, In another place, he says that the qualifications for leaders in the church, elders, we talked about nomination season, is that they must be well thought of by those outside the church. So there's a very strong biblical case made for being winsome and kind and liked. And yet if our goal is to be liked, we'll fail to love Um, And so I was reflecting on something Paul said to Timothy, who was with him on this trip, remember? He said to Timothy, at the very beginning of the letter that he wrote to him, the aim of our charge, our mission that Jesus has given us is love. And so I would just submit this to you as sort of a little something that might stick in your head. Aim to be loved, aim to love, not be liked. Right? If you aim to be liked, you're not going to be able to love well because you'll be so invested in your own reputation. But if you aim to love, some will like you. And those some are going to have their lives radically transformed. So Paul's success wasn't on how many people believed, but how faithful he was to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So he gets out of Berea because he has to. There's this, there's this riot starting. Um, and this time... He leaves by himself. Timothy and Silas stay behind in Berea. He gets on a boat and he sails far south to the city of Athens. And um, Athens, in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them there in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So still... A Greek city, right, like the previous, but a very different experience we see right away for Paul. Um, 
Historians say that Athens was the religious capital of Greece and, in fact, had more idols in the city than in the rest of the country combined. Uh, When he says it was full of idols, that word full means um, swamped by, like like a pile coming down on top of you. That's what that word means. And I actually pictured the show Hoarders. (laughs) Anybody ever see that? Like you go into someone's house and there's so much stuff you can't even get from one room to the next. That's kind of the picture. Like there's this just like so many idols. Paul's like, you're, you're full. This place is full of idols. Interesting picture. But the question is, how do they end up with all these idols? They didn't just find their way there. One commentator says that whatever strange gods were recommended to these people, they admitted them and allowed them a temple and an altar. So this was... I think even a point of pride for them. They, they had all this diversity and very eclectic and almost reminds me a little bit of here. America, we have this open exchange of ideas, which is a beautiful gift as a country. We, we have people who can choose what they want to believe, which is a very biblical concept. But there was also something very shallow about their experience in Athens. Because look at verse 21, and we'll put it on the screen here. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So that's how they got the idols, the fact that their value, their driving value wasn't to figure out the truth. It wasn't truth, but novelty. Can anyone relate to that in American culture today? Right, where it's, it's no longer, it seems, substance and depth, but now it's like shock value. Right? Entertain me. And that's why when I look at politicians, I think, I don't know that politicians make progress anymore through good policies. It's more about their personality and their popularity. And so we have these people who, I think a lot like us, were entertained by the new thing. Tell me about the new thing. Awesome. We'll just incorporate that. But Paul comes to town, and notice his response, because if, if I came to Athens, and I'm picturing it, and guys, I would love to go to Greece one day. I've never been. Um, all of these biblical towns, it would be so much fun. Paul comes into the town, and notice he doesn't say, wow, what a wonderfully diverse place. Uh, maybe he recognized it, and there was some value there for him. He didn't go to the museums and check out the cafes down on the corner. He was immediately disturbed. He was bothered. He was irritated. This strong emotional response. And I just immediately started thinking about, is that that how I feel when I look around and I see people being lied to? And I see people being misled and going down the wrong path. Is that my response? And if not, why not? Well, we live in a culture where you've probably noticed truth is increasingly viewed as relative. Right? Whatever's true for you is, is true for you. That's fine. You just keep that to yourself. And so it doesn't matter, actually, if, if you're an atheist or a Buddhist or Mormon or Christian or agnostic or whatever, because, so the narrative goes, all religions lead to the same place. Right? All, all roads lead to, to God or whatever that is. And so it's not only unnecessary, but it's actually pretty offensive to suggest to someone that you have a better story than them. And that's kind of the, the, the narrative today. And, and as I've observed this, where truth becomes increasingly relative, faith is increasingly private. Have you felt that as a Christian? Right? Like you can believe those things, just keep those to yourself. 
A strong driver of this in our culture, I tried to think of an example, but one personally that I've encountered is this charge for us to coexist. I've seen this, this bumper sticker around with these different religious symbols, and, and right away I just want to be very clear, if by this we mean live together with people who are diverse in a respectful and a loving way, 100%, right? That's the calling of a believer, but the deeper message here and the, and, the, and the stated message is all of these religions are basically the same and it sort of uh, shaves off the distinct aspects that makes them what they are. It almost reminds me of like if I have two kids that are at odds and they have very different experiences, rather than taking the time to, to understand the distinction, I just say, it doesn't matter, get along. And there's a little bit of that, right? Like to say all religions are the same, I think you have to have not studied any of them. Because they're not all the same. There's some really glaring differences between them. They can't happily coexist, even though we as humans certainly can. Friends, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How does that play in today's society? Jesus is the only way, the only road. And by the way, in the next two weeks, we're going to show why. That verse, by the way, I think is, is a helpful and, and non-confrontational way to engage with someone who's sort of got this pluralistic mindset. And just, it just suggests to them, just say, did you know that Jesus claimed to be the only way to God? Did you know that? And maybe even say, do you believe that? Now, if they say no, Suddenly, like, you got to peel that bumper sticker off, right? Because there's at least one religion there that is either totally false or exclusively true. So that's what happens when you start to actually get into the distinct aspects of the narratives and go, oh, we're not, we're not talking about the same thing here, are we? But this is why Jesus, at the end of his ministry, said, go, tell, preach the good news to all creation, I'm happy that we have this evangelistic heart. We're part of an evangelical church, I guess is the word. And while I'm very respecting um, of other church expressions, I was honestly thinking this week, is there such a thing as a non-evangelical expression of Jesus' mission? Is it okay as a Christian to say to Jesus, no, I'm not going to proactively go and share this good news with others. I would suggest that if we are buying into the modern narrative that it doesn't matter because they're all the same, we will back off the message. We will stop sharing. And so for the Athenians, if all religions lead to the same place, these guys are covered. They're, they're good. It's like saying all roads lead to Montana, <laughs> right? Which they should for, for the record, but it's just, not, it's just not true. It doesn't make sense, right? But these Athenians, Paul comes and he knows what Jesus said. He knows the, the commission to go share this news with people. And so he's, he's bothered. He's bothered by it. Verse 17, continue with me, as was his custom. It says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Um, I think it's interesting that he started not with the pagan philosophers and uh, saying all of these idols are garbage, um, but he started with the Jews, the Jewish synagogue, because I think on the one hand, as God's people, they... Um, had the greatest opportunity to make a difference in the city after Paul moved on, right? But also they sort of bore the greatest responsibility for how it got to where it was. 
Because I can almost think how the Jews at one point probably were also bothered by the idolatry. They probably looked around and went, this is, ah, this is bad. This isn't the way it should be. But man, day after day of walking past those idols, they, they got used to them, maybe. Maybe even stopped noticing they were there. And so I thought, friends, if, if Paul came to America today, and I'm, I'm assuming he would come to the church first, what would he see? And what would he say? What have we perhaps become accustomed to and live coexisting with that doesn't really bother us anymore? And just to be clear, as you reflect on that question, the gospel's intent is never to bring shame. The gospel's intent is to make us effective. It's to sharpen us so that we can be effective in the culture in which we live, which I think was Paul's goal with the Jews. And I, I was thinking of a, um, a, some, something that's rolling around in my head this week is the effectiveness of the church in culture is tied to the holiness of the church. And, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. Holiness isn't perfection or I'm better than you. It, it just means set apart, different. I could look at you and say there's something different about you. But sort of the haunting question is what if the world looks at us and there's really not much difference to see? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, make every effort to live at peace. There's that verse. With everyone and be holy. Why? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's a bold statement. What was Paul's mission from Jesus? I'm sending you to open their eyes. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And what I would suggest is that if the church's eyes are closed to what's going on, the world's eyes will never be opened. It starts with us. So he's engaging with God's people. He's uh, like he did previously, explaining to them the Messiah, but this is where his audience expands and gets a little bit more eclectic. <laughs> Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, just very briefly, the Epicurean philosophers believed in free will, just to summarize it. Everything is totally under your control. Um, if you want something to happen, you have to make it happen. And if there are any gods, which they believed in gods generally, they are totally uninvolved in the details of your daily life, right? So it's all up to you. The Stoic philosophers were on the opposite end of the spectrum. They believed that everything was predetermined by the gods, and so any sort of uh, idea that you could seize the moment and make the most of your life was just simply an illusion because it was all determined by the gods. And so the really goal is to live in line with the will of the gods and to know it. And so this just gives you a picture of the spectrum Paul's dealing with. And we're going to get back in a minute to why these two groups matter in Paul's address to the, to the city. But he begins to share some things, Paul does, that they have not heard before. They're strange things. And luckily for Paul, that's a value. <laughs> In Athens, right, they spent their time doing nothing except hearing the new thing. So they heard Paul and they're like, we want to hear more. So they invite him to the Areopagus, which is this rock, Mars Hill, where they, they, they would gather to talk about history, culture, religion, all the new things that were going on in the world. And they invited Paul to share from that place. Um, and, and you think about his previous interactions in the Jewish synagogue. What did he go to to, to reason and argue? S scriptures, right? He opened up the scriptures. Why? Because that's the language the Jews spoke. How is his address here with these philosophers, these Greeks, different? Let's see. Verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. (laughs) I'll just pause a moment. Paul's uh, reference to them as being very religious would have been received as a compliment. You guys are beautifully eclectic in your religious expression. I can see that. He's building a, a bridge here, as opposed to standing up and saying, your, your idols are ridiculous and you're all wrong. And that would have been the end of the conversation. But he's like, you guys are, wow, man, look at all these things, right? You're very religious. And I think Paul probably had to like push that out in all of his disturbed spirit. But he's, he's trying to build a bridge to these guys and speak in a language they understand. It reminds me of, I used to sing in a few choirs in Missoula, and one of my closest friends in one of these choirs had a worldview and a lifestyle that was about as opposite from me as you could get. And yet we became really good friends because of music. And one of the things that I would regularly observe and acknowledge in him is, man, you are a lover of beauty. He loves music and art and the mountains, and he just was always talking about, I was like, dude, you really, you're, you've, you've got an eye for that. And so it was one of the only things I could find that was in common, but it opened the door to a ton of cool conversations. And so here's an example of Paul saying, you're very religious. That's a starting point. But then he draws attention to this odd inscription on one of the altars, to the unknown God. And by the way, there's a story here. Speaking of stories, and I want to share it with you briefly because it's very fascinating. I found it interesting 600 years earlier, in this city, the city of Athens, there was a terrible plague that they could not get rid of. People were dying and they were doing everything they could to get rid of the plague, including sacrificing animals to all of their idols, to all of their altars. They're like, all right, which of the gods is behind this plague? Who do we need to appease? And they did all that they knew how to do and they were at a total loss. Until one day, Nisian... Uh, Nicias, rather, was one of their politicians and military generals at this time. And he suggested, hey, what if there's a God we don't know about? What if, what if there's a God missing from our collection? And, and I think they all probably laughed because they're like, no, 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 we got them all. Trust us. But they're like, well, but what if, right? So they invited another person um, into town, this man named Epimenides, He's a well-respected philosopher and even a prophet in their eyes. They brought him to town and they said, what do we do? We've tried everything. And they pitched this possible scenario that they had left out one of the gods that they didn't know about. And so Epimenides thought about it and then he gave them some instructions. He said, I want you to gather a bunch of sheep and don't feed them for the evening. They're going to be really hungry. And in the morning, I want you to put all these sheep out in this green pasture. And if there, if there are sheep in the group that stop eating and just lay down, we're going to know there's an unknown God who is making them do that. And then we'll sacrifice those animals to the unknown God, right? So there's this plan, and again, they're laughing because they're like, these sheep are starving. There's no way they're going to lay down and stop eating. But sure enough, the next day, they did what he said to do, and one of the sheep laid down in the grass, stopped eating. And then another one laid down. And then another one. And so the Athenians are like, there's some God that's making them do this. And and so what they did was they went to those sheep that laid down, poor sheep, right? 
And they built altars in every place that said to the unknown God. There were actually multiple altars with that inscription at the time, and I don't know if they got destroyed or how many were there when Paul arrived, but there were lots of altars with that inscription. What they did is they would then, they sacrificed that sheep that laid down there at that altar to the unknown God. Now, there's a lot more to that story, but the crazy part about this is historians record that by dawn of the next day, the plague had broke. People began to get better which is wild to me. And so Paul is here now, 600 years after these events in this town, where he finds one of these altars. And here's where it gets good. Verse 23, he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul has built a bridge into their story, and now he starts to create some contrast to kind of say, hey, this is who God is in relation to who you've believed God to be. Right, So the contrast here is all of these idols you fashioned with your own hands and you're bowing to versus the God who fashioned you with his hands. So suddenly they're like, okay, this is out of the box. This is not like one of the idols we have here in our town. And I just think, imagine this moment of 600 years of history for these people of the unknown God and Paul saying, this is who he is. Powerful moment. It continues in verse 26, this God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Do you know you're alive today, here and now, because God chose that? That's what Paul is saying, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, do you remember the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers who are now in this group listening, this this polarized Um, um, philosophical debate in the city, right? Either we're totally in control of everything or uh, it's fatalism, right? The gods are in control and we just have to submit to the will of the gods. I love how Paul in those verses we just read speaks to both groups about the God who kind of breaks their their views of who he is. So for example, uh, God is the God who made us actively involved in your existence who determined when and where you would live. So who do you think in the philosophical spectrum he's he's appealing to right now? The Stoics, who are like, that's right, we believe God God is in control. He's sovereignly um, over all of this, right? But then in verse 27, it says, he put us here so we could seek him and feel our way toward him and find him. Who's Who's he addressing here? The Epicureans who are like, it's all up to you. And man, I was just thinking how, how Paul's words here address the philosophical divide in Athens. And I was thinking about our own version, might be Calvinist Arminian. Right? Either God is totally sovereign or free will. And, and Paul's like, you're both wrong and you're both a little bit right. Right? God transcends our narrow perspectives of how he works, I think, in a lot of cases. But this picture of feeling our way toward God, Paul is really quick to clarify that God's not like playing hide and seek. (laughs) 
Like, oh, I'm over here. Nope, I'm over here. Um, he's using language, I think, softened language they can connect to. But he says, feel your way toward God. Yet, verse 27, he's actually not far from any one of us. For, and here's a quote, in him we live and move and have our being. End quote. As even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul's quoting here, but what's he quoting? Scripture? Pagan philosophers that they knew and respected and understood and connected to. And so he's, he's quoting this, um, and I would argue Paul, by the way, is weaving Scripture truth throughout everything he's saying, but the quotes are these philosophers. And so as we work our way toward the end of our time this morning, I want to make three observations in the progression that Paul is using to engage these people because I think this is significant for us as we think about how do I engage with someone in the clutter of the noise and the conflicting stories in our culture how do I move towards someone first thing I see with Paul is Paul enters their story by speaking their language key words here enter their story as Christians, I think it's like, I got to share the story. I got to share the good news. I got to share the, it's like, I think there's something here to be said for, hold on. What's their story? What is important to them? What language would they hear and say, yeah, now you're talking to me, right? What, are the, what do people look to as authoritative in their life? What carries weight? It doesn't work anymore to say by the authority of God's word. Our world doesn't care about that anymore. So, so what is it that holds authority for them? What is it that moves them? And what is it that they value? It takes time and effort to learn those things. But that's what Paul is doing. And, and what's amazing as an illustration of this, Paul, when he quotes these two philosophers, do you know who he's quoting when he said, in him we live and move and have our being? It's a 600-year-old poem written by Epimenides the same philosopher that they brought to town to help them figure out this problem of the plague. So Paul's not just throwing in a cultural reference to be cool. He's referencing the moment they were at the end of themselves and this unknown God intervened. Like, think about the power of that for these people. He knows who Epimenides is. One of my favorite examples of this personally, because I was trying to relate it to like, okay, I'm not going to reference Epimenides to anybody, um, is a song by John Mayer. I like John Mayer's music and his musicianship, and that's all I'll say about that. But um, uh, one of his songs that I've used in conversation with people, he has a song called Something's Missing. And, and I, to be honest, one of the reasons I enjoy a lot of secular music is like, even though they don't say, it's Jesus, he's the answer, they give me a little bit more robust perspective of the human experience than I get in some of the other songs that just say, it's Jesus. This is the answer, but sometimes I'm like, what's the question? And so I listen to these songs, I'm like, that's why Jesus is necessary. Anyway, John Mayer has a song, Something's Missing, and in the lyrics, he's talking about how much he has, how blessed he's been. He doesn't say blessed, of course, but he says this, I'm dizzy from the shopping mall. <laughs> I searched for joy, but bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. He's being super transparent here, right? And the chorus, here's the chorus. Something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing and I don't know what it is. 
Now, by the time he gets to the bridge, it literally reminds me of Athens. He starts listing off in musical form all of the things that he's tried, all of the things that he has, and he's like, I've got friends, I've got money, I've got guitars, I've got women, I've got relationships, all these things. And at the end, though, he comes back to the chorus. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Now, of course, as I said, John Mayer never says, it's Jesus, (laughs) But I love that he's honest enough to admit what I think everyone feels on some level apart from God. Friends, when we walk away from the infinite God in whose image we were made, it takes an infinite number of things to fill his shoes. In other words, it's impossible. You'll just keep adding and adding and adding and adding and only the infinite God can fill that space that he made you for. What's missing? This is one of the doors into people's stories is like everything's awesome, is there anything that feels like it's missing? See, that's a cool question. Well, the, next, uh, the second step, Paul has entered into their story. Number two, Paul examines it. He graciously exposes the inconsistencies in their story from inside their story. Verse 29, he says, Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So this is like a gracious critique. He's kind of pushing on a hole in the plot of their story. You're worshiping these idols, but one of your own poets says you're the offspring of this God. So, so, so how can you be the offspring of a God, but also then you made this thing with your hands and that's the God? Are you the offspring of that piece of rock or wood? So he, he's, he's kind of pushing a little bit on their story from inside after building this bridge into their reality. And, um, and I think a good question that runs in my mind that gets to this is, how's, it, how's that working for you? How's this working for you? And, and there's a, to be honest, there's a, there's a snarky way to say that, and that would not be what I would recommend. Um, but basically, like, of all the things you've pursued, is it, is it the dream that has always been in your heart? How's it going? How's that story working for you? Is anything missing? Um, Well, the last step before we close, Paul enters their story. He's examining it from the inside and exposing some inconsistencies. And finally, this is the goal, to lead them out to a better story. And this is the last two verses before we close. Verse 30 and 31, Paul says this to them, the times of ignorance, not knowing what's right, God overlooked, but now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. That word means literally to turn toward him. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now we meet Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this is where Paul finally gets to introduce Jesus to these people. And he's saying uh, their, their eyes are now opened, which Jesus sent him to do, open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light. This is the moment. He's saying, now turn. Turn to God's story. This is the God that you've called unknown. He's the one who made you. Turn to him. But it would be awesome if it read next, if we read that the whole city applauded and turn to God, and then the whole city was, but that's not what happens. We've already seen the gospel produces two responses. So verse 34 says, some believed, but others mocked, especially the idea of the resurrection. And so this was an ongoing conversation. I wish we had more time today, but as our worship team comes to close our time, 
I want to just ask a couple questions. First, what is something in your life that could serve as a bridge into someone else's life in, in your world, in, in our culture? What's something God has given you? I, I referenced music as one for me, not only the lyrics of a popular song, but also singing in choir has been a lot, a lot of the conversations I've had with people through music. What is it for you? Is it a love for sports? Is it a love for food? And maybe you have someone over and bless them with a meal and talk about like your favorite meals and that turns into something. My point though is if Jesus could use water to share the gospel with the woman at the well, and if Paul could use pagan philosophy, um, we've got a lot. And so what could that be for you? I don't think that's an answer that's easy uh, to come up with. Maybe it's just a question you ask God this afternoon. God, what would that be? Maybe there's already something in place that you would recognize and give God thanks for and say, oh, wow, I have a lot of bridges into people's lives. Uh, the second question, the last one, is how well do you know the unknown God? Do you know the unknown God? Um, or like the Athenians, maybe you've got several altars to the unknown God in your life. You go to church, you, you've got a Bible there in your apartment or your house somewhere. Maybe you could say you were raised in a Christian home and those all kind of point to the unknown God. But you would say, I don't have any kind of active relationship with him. And friends, I just want to tell you, that's what you're made for. That's what I'm made for is to know God. And so if you want that today, I would urge you to, to seek him. What does Paul say? Seek him, feel your way, reach out, find him because he's not far from any one of us. In him, we live and move and exist. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for our time together, for your word. Thank you for the depth and complexity of your word and yet also how you make it known to us by your spirit. Lord, I know there's so much we can't cover in our time as much as it would be wonderful to be able to. But Jesus, I pray right now that you by your spirit would take maybe one thing that you want each of us to take with us today and you'd press that down into our hearts. Or, or maybe it means bringing it to our minds over lunch it pops back up into our minds and that's the cue that we need to respond. We need to do something. And Lord, what, that's gonna be different for every one of us, Lord. So whatever that is from our time this morning, I pray, Jesus, we submit um, to you, the work of your Holy Spirit and recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. This is not us trying to be more Christian. This is us letting you, Jesus, live your life through us for the good of others. God, we pray for open doors um, to build bridges into the lives of those who don't know you, that we would be winsome and kind and friendly and also genuinely caring for the people to learn their stories. God, that you give us wisdom in those moments to notice inconsistencies and even just the wisdom to know the timing of how to introduce people to the better story. We pray all of this in your great name. Amen.